0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good morning. Welcome to this morning's Commonwealth program, Stanford's Robert Pearl, The Toxic Culture of Medicine. My name is Julie Klager, and I am a Senior Managing Director for Healthcare and Digital Health Transformation at FTI Consulting. I am also a hospital board system member and a nurse by background, and I'm the daughter of a Kaiser physician. So this means I spend a lot of time thinking about how we can improve health and healthcare for our physicians and our patients and all who serve there. Honestly, I cannot think of a more important issue in healthcare today than discussing the role of physicians since they are singularly critical to the functioning and dysfunctioning of our healthcare system. And I can think of no one more important and prepared to discuss these issues than our featured guest here today on today's program, Dr. Robert Pearl. As some may know, Dr. Pearl is the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group. He is now a professor at Stanford University, at the School of Medicine, and at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. He is also the author of the best-selling book, Mistreated. He is also the host of the podcast, Fixing Healthcare. Today, we are here to discuss Dr. Pearl's new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. Okay, so let's jump in. Dr. Pearl, if I may, when did you first realize you wanted to write a book about physician culture? Was there a formative moment? Or event where you thought, aha, this culture thing is a problem. I should write about it. Or did your insights accumulate over time?
1: Thank you, Julie. In 2017, I published the book Mistreated, had a chance to speak at the Commonwealth Club at that time, and it pointed out all of the problems of the system of American health care, the problems with insurance coverage. The problems with egregious pharmaceutical pricing, technological problems. I pointed out at the time that the most common way that physicians exchange information is with the fax machine, an 1850, actually 1832 invention. Uh, all the systemic issues were there. And as I traveled around the country, speaking at meetings, talking to hundreds of physicians, it became clear to me that there was another part of the equation. Cause if that was the only problem, we would have already addressed it. And this is what I started my research, talking to physicians, talking to other healthcare professionals. And I uncovered the physician culture, this invisible force, the values, the beliefs the norms that we learn in medical school and residency and carry across our careers. And that led to the writing of Uncaring, how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients and all profits from this book, as well as the first book, go to an amazing charity called Doctors Without Borders that today is in India and Brazil and other places around the world that are suffering. And as I say, all the profits are dedicated to that great organization.
0: Yeah that's that's great. I'm really glad that you mentioned that and I'm and I'm and I'm sure they're very pleased for your for your uh, awareness of the organization and contribution to them. So if if we if if you'll allow before we get too far into the program perhaps you can summarize for us what is physician culture.
1: So physician culture as we said it's the values, the beliefs and the norms. It's not taught in a classroom, it's not Found in a textbook, you learn it by observation, through the stories that people tell, through the language that they use. And before we go too far, I want to point out that often this physician culture is wonderful. It allowed physicians early in the coronavirus pandemic to take care of patients for 12. And 24 hours a day, when there were no, when protective gear was unavailable, they donned garbage bags and put on salad lids in place of masks. You know, they knew that every time they intubated a patient, as that tube went through the vocal cords, the patient would cough, screwing virus in the face, and they did it anyway. When two patients needed a ventilator there was only one machine, they figured out how to put both of them on the same machine, something that had never been done before, never even thought of as a possibility. And yet at the same time, that same culture has other consequences. One of the ways culture developed across time was up to very recently, very little could physicians do. And denial and repression were essential, essential to let them get through the day as children would be dying in front of their parents, and they had no ability to reverse the course. Or as I say in the book, I tell the story about my cousin, Alan, who had Hodgkin's disease early in his life when he was a college student, and how the researchers at Stanford, the physicians there, would give him incredibly... Toxic medication, so that he was vomiting with diarrhea and pain an entire weekend's long, and it allowed them to continue doing that. So that today, we now can take care of these types of cancers with a high rate of success and without the same morbidity. This culture has been an amazing culture across time, and yet it's that same culture that gets often in the way and allows physicians to not notice many of the things that happen, You know, I might just tell the story, if it's okay, of Ignaz Semmelweis. 1850, he's appointed the head of the maternity unit in Vienna, Austria. And at that time, 18% of women die following childbirth from puerperal fever, an infection of the uterus that spreads throughout the body. And the thinking is that it's caused by my particles that drift up from the underlying streets below. But he's embarrassed by the fact that the adjacent facility, one run by nurse midwives, mortality is two-thirds lower. And he can't explain this. They're breathing the same air. How could it be? And one day, by serendipity, a colleague nicks his finger in the autopsy room, an autopsy being performed there a woman who's just died from puerperal fever. and goes on to develop not just a local infection, but a systemic disease that's the same. He he hypothesizes maybe the person's carrying it on their hands or the leather aprons they wear to protect their three-piece suits. So he says that all doctors going from the autopsy room to the delivery area will change aprons and dip their hands in chlorinated water. Lo and behold, mortality drops from 18% to under 2%. He writes it up. He writes letters to the maternity unit directors around the world. And guess what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. It's not logical. Here's a 90% reduction in mortality. And yet doctors ignore it. And the reason is this invisible culture. Because doctors see themselves as being incapable of carrying disease. They see themselves as healers in those leather aprons. They were signs of experience. The more blood, the more pus, plus, the better it is. He dies alone in a mental institution four years later, and nothing changes until Louis Pasteur comes along 50 years later. And it's not a story really from 1850. Today, the leading cause of death in hospitals in the United States. is hospital-acquired infection. It's an organism called C. difficile. Unlike the coronavirus, it's not. Car- it doesn't go through the air. It's carried on our hands, and yet one in three times, physicians don't wash their hands as they go from one room to another. You know, we tell ourselves about the systemic problems. There's not enough money, or it's too expensive. No, it's inexpensive. This is pennies. Or too much time. No, with new alcohol-based disinfectants, it would take less than three seconds. It's the same culture, because whenever the patient dies, everyone assumes it wasn't them. But it has to be someone. And that's why I write about this. We talk about racism. You see the same phenomenon. We may talk about technology. In so many different areas, it's not that physicians in any way would ever want to harm a patient. They're dedicated, hardworking. But the truth is that patients are being harmed as are physicians.
0: So do you think that the reason, you know, that that, do you think it's because, just to try to summarize or restate some of the things that you've talked about is, you know, it's a very, it it's a very, in, uh, uh, it's a co- culture filled with bright people, with uh, people who are creative, who know how to problem solve, who really desperately want to do the right thing at the right time when, you know, as your your story about and experience with coronavirus, uh, and being really, you know, figuring out what to do to take care of the most people as possible and in many ways being heroic. And yet the mundane things, there is a maybe a sense of invisibility and invincibility that if since they didn't learn it in school, it's not important enough to take seriously. Would that is it something around those lines? What yeah, think? I think you've explained that well, I mean
1: culture is about esteem and respect. It's sometimes associated with money. And again, in the minds of many physicians, the issues are around income and patients being seen per day. And these are true and very problematic and need to shift. But I make the point in the book, we have to shift both the systemic problems and the cultural ones that are there. So when you start looking at what do Physicians value, they value intervention over prevention. I Washing hands
0: about that.
1: is something you need to know, but and do, but it's just not that important. If you skip the step, it's not a big issue. They value the things that they uniquely can do, not the things that can be more routinely done. So they don't value Things that can be uh, evidence-based practices that people have to rigidly follow, even though they're going to lead to excellent results as a consequence. They value multi-million-dollar machines that make that are shiny and bright and Star Wars-like, like robots and uh, proton beam accelerators. What they don't uh, value is telemedicine. Yeah, they see it as being better than having a patient come to their office during COVID. But the idea that says this might be better care, more immediate, uh, lower cost, more convenient for the patient. Doctors value their time much more than the patient's time. And every one of these has a systemic basis, but they also have a cultural one.
0: So I, I, I do want to talk to you about telehealth, but right now, you know, I want to circle back. You were talking about the that physician culture elevates intervention above prevention. You write that. You talk about how that comes into play with managing or poorly managing chronic conditions, which we know affects maybe even the majority of, of Americans who are over, you know, 65, Um Talk to us a little bit about how financial motivation uh and financial incentives, you know, and maybe the hierarchy of medicine, which you write about regarding specialists versus primary care physicians, how those things all play in together to, in fact, you know, prioritize and prize intervention.
1: It's impossible to totally separate. The systemic and the cultural pieces, they both influence each other. And so as an example, primary care, what the data says is that adding 10 primary care physicians to a community increases longevity two and a half times more than adding 10 specialists. And yet we train a lot more specialists compared to other nations and a lot fewer primary care physicians. Now, again, there's a salary issue that exists, although we also may talk soon about burnout and the specialty that's most burned out is actually not primary care, but urology, which is a surgical specialty. But overall, if you ask medical students about primary care, they don't see it as being near the top of the hierarchy. They also can see the financial issues. But they don't see that. They see becoming an interventional cardiologist or a orthopedic or neurosurgeon as just being a higher valued position, despite all the data that says, no, primary care should be at the top. Similarly, we elevate the value of the interventional cardiologist who unblocks the vessel to the heart. Or the uh, interventional radiologist unblocks the blood vessel to the brain and reverses stroke more than the physicians who prevent it in the first place. Now again, I want to keep talking about this balance. Insurance companies don't pay enough for doctors to do uh, preventive care. They don't they don't value it as much as well. But we have that same issue. If you look at COVID, eighty eight percent of people admitted to the hospital who went on to die had two or more chronic diseases. And if we look at one in particular, high blood pressure, hypertension, across the United States today, we, we take care of it. We have it under control, fully under control, only 55 to 60% of the time. You know, when I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we were at 90%. Our doctors were good, but the doctors in the community were just as good. Our medications were identical. Why would there be This difference, and it comes down to a culture where everyone is committed to prevention, to avoiding strokes, avoiding heart attacks, and it's how the mortality dropped by forty percent compared to the community around us. Some of that is the system, but a lot of that is the physician culture.
0: Right, and I, I would, I would guess again, being the daughter of a Kaiser doctor and being a Kaiser patient myself. Or member is it's it's the culture as you're saying, which will be interesting if we have time. Be it, you know, we can discuss perhaps more about how you created that culture, but also it's the incentives are aligned, right? So so it all works in everyone's favor. It's a sort of a a righteous or virtuous cycle. Also, to your point, the the system connects and and in, and incentivize and and promotes and you know, everyone benefits if they're all in the same, heading in the same direction, which is not always the case with a community physician who's maybe on a different kind of payment model. So those are, those are important considerations as well.
1: Absolutely right. The system affects the culture, the culture affects the system. When you're paid in a, I'll use the technical term first, capitated Which means that a group of doctors and a hospital get a certain payment to take care of a population of patients. And now you're at risk. What you see is that prevention becomes more important. Primary care becomes more valued. You start lowering the incidence of medical errors. You start avoiding complications from chronic disease or elevating the importance a lot because You have a financial incentive to do that, but it gets built into the culture. And similarly, as the culture shifts, you start wanting to take this type of payment because it fits in with your values and your beliefs and your norms. And that's why these pieces reinforce each other. And when we look to the future, what you see is that you're not going to be able to change just the system or just the culture. They're both going to have to evolve together.
0: Right. which is very, very difficult. Kaiser Permanente has been at it since the beginning. Now we see many other Organizations and systems trying to replicate something similar, so that that alignment of the system and the culture and behaviors and norms stack up in the way you're discussing. You know, we we have a question from one of our our listeners here. Might well ask it because it sort of fits right in. Which is uh, this question is around the difference between the physician culture in the United States versus physician culture in other countries. Is that something you could speak towards? Other countries, as
1: we said earlier,
0: have a
1: much greater number of primary care physicians and their role becomes more central and the salary differential becomes less, actually, with the system and the culture move together. So it is significantly different. And when you look at the statistics, what do you see? United States, we spend $11,000 per American on average. Switzerland's at 9,000. Germany at 7,000. And almost every other country is less than half of the United States. And when you look at the outcomes, what do you see? We're last. Last amongst the 12 industrialized nations in life expectancy, childhood mortality, maternal mortality. We have in the culture of American medicine, the values of what adds the greatest to health confused with the ways to be able to most, uh, greatest opportunity to avoid disease and the greatest opportunity to extend life and improve health.
0: And and while this is perhaps a bit outside the, the, the your book and, and, and the conversation, there's other, other countries have other, uh, you know, societal benefits that are, when we talk about, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about the role of social determinants of health and how society and what is valued in the society help allow people to be more healthy, which is an important part here.
1: Absolutely. The social determinants of health have been seen as being as significant in terms of people's overall health and life expectancy as the medical interventions themselves. By social determinants, what we're really talking about is going to be the housing, the food, transportation, the socioeconomics, educational systems, the pieces that add a lot of value to life that are not necessarily inside the traditional culture of medicine. So, if we look at this issue of racism in the time of COVID, you see this coming out very powerfully. What you see is that uh, black patients had a mortality that was two to three times higher than white patients. And by the way, it's still happening today. Now, if you ask physicians why does that happen, they'll point to the systemic issues. They'll point out the fact that Black patients often worked in jobs that require them going to work rather than staying home on Zoom. They took buses and subways that were crowded and places where disease could be transferred. They lived in multi-generational homes. And all these pieces are crucial. Nations that faced the same issue found ways to let people be able to isolate, socially distance during the pandemic with a much lower mortality than in the United States. But at the same time, they're the cultural pieces because we tell ourselves that as physicians, we treat every patient the same. And yet the data says that in the early period of COVID, when there was not enough testing kits available, physicians in the ED tested white patients twice as often as black patients, despite the fact that the chances of the black patient dying was two to three times higher. They gave 40% less pain medication to black patients after the same procedures. And we already know that the mortality is three times higher amongst women giving birth who are black uh, patients than white patients, except when the attending physician is a black physician. And then they disappear and this week alone, what we saw is tremendous differences between hospitals in the same community, separated between a few blocks where the majority of the patients were black patients versus white patients. Despite the fact they were close by where the white, the patients of the white hospitals were receiving medications and food. The ones of the black hospitals, often the facilities were receiving uh, freezers and body bags as the mortality was so much higher. And yet, as a specialty, we don't react and say, this is just wrong. What can we do to make that difference? And that's why I wrote the book, to be able to point out that in our culture, it's not our problem. We don't see it. We deny it. Maybe we talk about it a little bit, but we don't see an obligation to make the change. And I think embedded in the best of values of the physician culture, the ones that allow the doctors to take care of the patient at the emergency departments. It's there as part of our mission and purpose and having lost that connection, some of it because of these systemic forces, but having lost that connection across time, I think it's harming not just patients, but the doctors themselves.
0: Well, let me let me just spend a, a moment longer on this because it's such an important point that you're raising and I think it's probably to many listeners will find it a disturbing point that you've just made. I mean, I I don't we, I don't think you're saying that doctors are purposefully racist. Is it a blind spot or is it what do you think that's, what do you think that differences in treatment uh, is due to? That is such an
1: important question because we know the answer. And the answer is, is what's called implicit bias. If you think about the evolution of human beings, 20,000, 30,000 years ago, we'd see a person coming over the horizon and we'd have a fraction of a second to decide whether this was a friend to welcome or a foe that was coming there to kill us, whom we better shoot an arrow at or in some other way, harm before they can harm us. And you develop a certain, I'll call it tribalism. There are the things that are inside, the people who look like us, speak the same language, worship the same God, and the people who are different than us. And this implicit bias, which by the way has been shown to exist in two-thirds of white physicians when it comes to black patients, is just part of our evolution. And I was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I got asked this question. He said, is implicit bias racism? And my answer was, implicit bias is not racism. But having seen it and doing nothing about it, that is racism. And that's where I want to be pointed out. Doctors are well-motivated. The idea that it hurt a patient is not even in their mind possible, The idea that they would treat patients differently based upon the color of their skin, that is not possible. And yet I wrote the book to show in the data, and they're talking about dozens and dozens of studies, the outcomes in terms of quality do vary by these various factors. And having seen that, I believe that we have an obligation, despite the systemic issues that exist. In recognition that many of the forces around us we can't control that lead to the same outcomes, I believe that we have this obligation to do something. And again, I want to stress, I think we will feel better about it. You know, although I'm a plastic surgeon, my focus is cleft lip and cleft palate. It wasn't cosmetic surgery, did very little of that. And I did a lot of trips around the globe. And we would go to countries in Central America. 100 degrees out, no air conditioning, you're eating rice and beans, GI upset, and you'd come back full of energy after working 12 and 14 hours, having volunteered to do this. There's something about that I write in the book about a physician who went to Liberia. He had to have IVs going into his arms because the protective suit against the Ebola that he was treating made it so hot he would have basically become dehydrated and passed out. And I've never seen someone come back So excited about the work that he did. I think we've given up a lot because of the systemic issues, and we have to work to change them while we evolve and transform the physician culture.
0: And I think that's why your book is really so important. Because at the my experience working with physicians, and my father, as I mentioned, being a Kaiser physician, would is would always tell me if you want to change doctor's behavior to bring it back to the patient. They will do anything to improve patient care. If they think it will improve patient care, that's the way to to connect with them. So I do think that, uh, and we can get into burnout in a second, but that's really at the core is they really are you know, as as all caregivers, nurses, physicians, they're there really to try to be significant in their work, and to do significant work and to improve patients' lives. And it gets buried right under so much of this administrivia. But before we go there, let me just ask you one question because you're talking about some things that are, you know, some people will find disturbing. They probably disagree with you. You probably get a lot of feedback from your colleagues who say, "Well, gee, you're not you're not right at all. I disagree with you," and. It in reading your book it 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 reads a little bit like you're an insider writing an exposé on your own culture and i'm wondering do you see somebody do you see yourself as as the person who's exposing the proverbial elephant in the room is how do you view yourself in this
1: well first of all there's no greater cheerleader for uh being a physician and for practicing medicine than I am. The fact that at the end of the book, I talk about the fact that the best decision I ever made was becoming a doctor, uh, and that I hope that the next generation can do the same. And it's not an expose because hopefully the reader will see that I have such massive respect for what physicians do. I mean, they work incredibly hard under difficult circumstances. They work in a system that is completely broken. And so I don't think it's exposing anything. I think it is pulling back the curtain and allowing not just patients, but doctors to be able to see it. And you're right. Some people have not been happy about the fact that I've exposed it. They think a wall of silence is better. I don't believe that that's the way to improve the care for either the doctors or the patients. And so I actually, I welcome the discussion and the disagreement you know kubler ross has talked about the five stages of grief and i think we have to understand that that's somewhat what's happening in american medicine to physicians today and i want to differentiate the things that are done by for profit insurance companies or drug companies from just the societal changes that are happening around us I mean, patients are more knowledgeable. Why is that? It's called the internet. They can can explore and find details on a variety of diseases, and soon they're going to have AI to help them be able to make diagnoses. And they are going to come with more information. And that starts to level the playing field and start to eliminate the paternal approaches of healthcare in the 20th century. You know, the patients become a consumer. They want the same convenience. In healthcare, whether it's the ability to make online appointments and emails, engage in video, uh, those opportunities are going to be there, and that's going to grow more. And every time that change happens, it's a flattening of the hierarchy, and physicians and patients are becoming much more collaborators on disease rather than the doctor being the one to explain to the patient. And again, intellectually, it makes sense to the doctors. But what we know from cultural studies is that when one's position relative on the hierarchy starts to decline, you become dissatisfied, unfulfilled, and fatigued, the exact symptoms we see in burnout. And I think those things are happening. And so again, the book is written as much for doctors as for patients to point out these things. Now, if people disagree with the, data and the facts, if they say, oh, no, black patients aren't dying more often, okay, let's look at the numbers. But if they are dying more often, let's look at the causes. And there is a group, using the Kubler-Ross analogy, that has gone from denial to anger, who's saying, we accept no blame. It's all being done to us. And my belief is maybe the majority, the overwhelming majority is systemic, But if we're going to make the rest of the world respond, we have this obligation to change as well. The things that are under our control, whether it's 10% or 30% or 50%, that is less crucial than the fact that it is there. And I believe that in accepting it. And one last piece I wanna point out. The physician culture, as we said, focuses on denial and repression. When you're a resident, you just buck up. You just do the work, 80 hours, 100 hours. We're told never acknowledge your feelings. Never say that you're hurting. And there's nothing that's more dangerous right now in the context of COVID than those actions and those defense mechanisms. I talked to one physician who lost four patients in a day. You know, a resident has started a month rotation. And by the end of the month, every patient that uh, he had inherited was now dead. Uh, we have to be able to talk about these things and explain these things. We have to be able to get psychological help. The idea of saying, I need psychological assistance. It's just taboo in the culture of medicine. This is what has to change. And by the way, although, you know, we're focusing on physicians, the same kind of pain is happening to the nurses providing care in the critical care units. I think nurses are a bit more open. To providing the care. I wrote the book about doctors because that's what I know the best. Those are the hundreds of people i talked to in preparation for publication. Someone else can write about nurses, but I suspect that the PTSD that we're going to see is going to be just as prevalent amongst nurses as physicians.
0: I, I suspect that that too. You know, you talk a lot about, and and let's talk a bit now about physician satisfaction and burnout. You, talk, you know, but I do want to underscore one of the things you were talking about, which is, you know, around the role of the physician and the the the, the learned culture, which is both, I think, a, a, a hallmark of why physicians have special status in this in in the professional hierarchy. I think that's reasonable, but it's also, uh, it's also what you're mentioning is being degraded a bit, uh, with the, with the uprising of information and access to information and, and leveling that playing field in terms of the, the regular, quote unquote, regular person being able to you know come up to speed and maybe come into your office and say gee doctor pearl i read read up on doctor google and you know doctor google tells me here are the four things that are wrong with me uh you know some doctors like that some doctors may not like that and and you talk about loss of control and status there are many reasons but i suspect you know that the while it's good that consumers and 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 people who will become patients one day take more control, like they do in all other regards of their lives, it's not always met with the greatest, um, you know, open arms by all physicians. So talk about that interplay of how, how that, you know, the consumerism in healthcare can both, you know, potentiate better outcomes for patients, but also maybe, you know, be seen as a drop in you know, infringement for the physician and their job.
1: You're correct that the uh, that a, a growing number or a large number of doctors see it as problematic. They'll point out all the misinformation that exists in places like the internet. Patients don't care. That's the reality. They feel that they want to have more information. They reject a lot of the physician culture. I mean, think about it. You know, what do we call that area when you walk through the door to the office? It's a waiting area. Your job is to wait. No, why is it not a reception area, an educational area? Why is it not a place that we do the kinds of things that, you know, retail places would be accomplishing? It's because we don't see that patient as a customer. We see it in a very paternalistic type way. You know, the uh, p- the patient's capable of booking an entire trip to Europe once COVID restrictions are gone, from the comfort of their home. The airlines, the airports, the transportation, the tours, and yet as they can't be transmit information to a doctor using secure email, using telemedicine that sits in place. These are the pieces, I think of the culture of medicine that is there, the time of the patient, the convenience of the time, is just not valued in that system. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, Doctors are working incredibly hard. They are overwhelmed with time, and the idea of wasting time is really problematic. But I think that the response to that is to ask, how do we evolve this? How do we find the right tools to allow us to provide care to patients that is higher in quality, not more problematic, easier to access, more convenient? And physicians are afraid. They're saying, I'm already working so hard. I can't do any more. And they're right. And that's why an evolution, a movement away from individual physicians all working by themselves to a collaborative and cooperative group. and Telemedicine, video, is a powerful tool to do that. You can create a virtual Kaiser Permanente if that's your goal. And we use Kaiser Permanente sort of as just a label. It's really an integrated, multi-specialty medical group paid in a capitated way. You can create that without physicians having to move out of their office into someone else's building or necessarily give up the things that are valuable to them. But it requires that there be a leadership structure. And there's no leadership structure in healthcare today because in the culture of medicine, every physician clings to their autonomy even when their outcomes have been shown to be not as good as they potentially could be as we saw in the hypertension example. This is the cultural shift that has to happen. I believe they're gonna be happier in this new role. I think that some will disagree. And it's going to be this movement through the stages of grief to acceptance. And acceptance is not saying this is the best way. Acceptance is not saying this is what I want. It's saying this is the reality, the new reality of the world. You know, a few years ago, I was in Oregon at a health science building, and I saw a sign that said, quality, service, cost across the top. And below it said, "Pick any two. The 21st century, no. Two is not good enough. We have to find the ways to elevate that quality, make the access easier, more convenient, more patient-focused, and lower cost. I think we have the tools today. The culture stands in the way, and the systemic issues are problematic, but I believe that we
0: can change them if we can evolve that culture going forward. So let me before I ask you specifically a bit more about telemedicine let me ask you you know the as we as as there might be some erosion or getting into and kind of eating away at some of the physician status and what was typically or historically the domain of the physician and the patient or the consumer becomes more empowered and enabled um do you think that could be better for patient care and better for outcomes.
1: If if what? If the evolution happens, you mean? If
0: in fact the status of the physicians lowers over time because patients are taking a bigger role in their health care.
1: I absolutely believe that if doctors and patients work together as one, that we can achieve remarkable outcomes. The problem is that the culture will stand in the way because we don't necessarily value those things that doctors and patients do together as much as the things that doctors uniquely can do. And again, it's made worse by the systems that don't pay enough for taking the time to have those conversations. But let's look at issues like diabetes. And one third of people have diabetes and it's going to lead to blindness amputations, heart disease, kidney failure. And we don't do a lot about it. Some of it for systemic reasons and some of it for cultural reasons. We take colon cancer screening across the United States today. We screen for colon cancer about sixty percent of the time. This is a very I don't call it preventable in the sense that we can take it down to zero, but we could lower dramatically the chance of people dying from colon cancer. In Kaiser Permanente we're at ninety percent and I think it was a result of the cultural aspects recognizing that aligned with the economic ones that don't exist, and the mortality from colon cancer deaths dropped 30% below the nation as a whole. But we don't see this. I guess I keep wanting to go back to this theme. Another example to me was the no, December 2019, two months before. COVID comes ashore. The federal government publishes data saying that healthcare is going to go up 5 to 6% a year every year for the next decade. Today we're at $3.7 trillion. That's $6.2 trillion. We're talking about $2.5 trillion of added expense. I look at those numbers, I say, that's unaffordable. It's unaffordable for patients, for families, for employers. But you didn't see any of the national medical organizations saying that. Because in the culture of medicine, the assumption is we're going to keep doing things the way we've been doing them. And of course, costs are going to rise. And it's a good thing because patients will get more care instead of, I think, shifting it to say, how do we maximize health outcomes? How do we more effectively use the resources? Another great example came from the Mayo Clinic. 30% of what physicians do They showed ads no value. And yet we keep doing those things. Ask ourselves, how could we use that money better? We could use it to put in place some of the president's plans around infrastructure rebuilding and education and childcare. We could invest it in more prevention, more primary care. We could invest in giving doctors more time. There are a lot of ways we could use that money but that is not the conversation that has been having, that we've had. And again, it's why I wrote the book to stimulate that. Will it require changes in the systems around us and the drug company pricing and the, the designs of some of the technology? Absolutely. But why should physicians not be leading that process rather than feeling themselves victims of right. someone else doing it to them?
0: Right. And I and I think I think that's a really that is sort of the question to my mind, because, you know, you have a a great deal of experience. Kaiser Permanente, as an example of this integrated system that has aligned interests and financial interests, is a great example and it's a proof. It's been in existence for a long time. It is, in many ways, the model to to covet and to try to reproduce. Um, and, and we've known this for a long time. We know that fee for service drives behavior that is not always in the best interest of the patient. You have excess, uh, care being rendered, uh, that can be, you know, bad for quality and outcomes. We know all that. We've known that for many years, There's many papers written about that. And, and yet, um, and yet, you know, that the change is not happening by the physicians by and large. And we see the change happening, you know, we see that the, the, the force of change happening outside sometimes of healthcare. By the you know, for example, we see there's a lot of these telehealth platform companies coming um into business. They may not be traditionally healthcare. Players who have who have started these companies, they may be tech companies, um, and they're migrating care into a virtual environment. Right, you can you can see a doctor virtually on your phone, computer, text. You don't know anything about that doctor. That doctor doesn't know anything about you, but they guarantee, you know, you can get this care when you want it on demand. Um, so. I, I, is that a good thing for it, for the evolution of medicine? I mean, you know, we're seeing that change because the doctors, I don't think, are taking ownership of these important issues you're you're talking about. So the business community is taking, you know, is taking advantage of, they're seeing the winds of change. They're seeing that you can't spend money endlessly and that employers don't want to pay for, for this, for things that should have higher, co- uh, higher quality, lower cost, um, so what do you think that the rise of these companies, these telehealth companies, are a good thing uh, for for patients and, and physicians?
1: The word good is not really the issue. I think the issue is it will happen for the reasons you say that businesses are finding themselves in greater problems. You know, the post-coronavirus era, we will have borrowed $8 trillion at the federal level. That we need to get paid back. With interest. States by law have to have a balanced budget. Here in California, where we have Amazon and Google and Netflix, so there's a pretty good tax revenue, but across the country, that's not the case. There's higher costs for unemployment, higher costs for Medicaid, and small businesses, a third of them say without continued federal funding, we're going to be in trouble. I think we can expect that the downward pressure is going to occur. And it's going to lead in one of two ways. As you say, people have recognized literally for decades that FIFA services are going to work well. You know, when you start talking about presidents from Nixon to Clinton to Obama to Trump uh, and are all pushing in the same direction to move away from FIFA service into some type of prepaid capitated model and to go from fragmentation into integration, you know there's a lot of push that's happening there. And I think for the physicians listening in who are still doubtful, maybe still in the denial phase or even the anger phase. Maybe they're trying to bargain a little bit. They may be getting a little depressed and they're not yet at acceptance. The word I'd give you is Amazon. You know, when Amazon, when Haven was formed a few years ago and it was the combination of Amazon, Morgan Chase and Berkshire Hathaway, uh, I wrote a paper talking about Haven and the impact that it's going to have. And I said, Anyone who believes that Jeff Bezos joined this alliance in order to do, as the CEO said at the time, provide care only to his employees in a not-for-profit way, probably still believes that uh, that Amazon only sells books. Oh, no, no, no. This is going to be a for-profit uh, venture, and now we're seeing it for the reasons you say. Telemedicine, Amazon's going to offer nationally. Prime members out there who want to get a visit with a physician, can probably pay ten or fifteen dollars and be able to obtain one easily through Amazon. They're offering access to their sites right now in Seattle where they have the most employees, but they'll expand that nationally. We know that the friends of the well Jeff Bezos is no longer the CEO, but his friends run large companies and they're interested in the same things that are out there. And the idea that they're gonna contract with every hospital and every doctor in the community Amazon doesn't sell just books. That's not what they're going to do. And people often say, you know, isn't Amazon a bad company? Well, I don't work there, so I'm not going to comment on what it's like to work there. But I am a Prime member. And they give me a wide choice, clear transparency on the price. They deliver it as promised. In two days, I can track it. It's exactly what I wanted. And the cost is lower than going to a local store. It's hard for me to imagine that wouldn't be an experience that patients would want to pursue if it can be fully developed. And I think that that's going to be the future. Now, is it gonna come in three years, five years, seven years? I don't, I'm not sure. And maybe some physicians will think, just hold on and it will go away. It's not gonna go away or just hold on because I'm close to retirement. That might work. I think this process of change has to be led by clinicians. My big concern, Julie, is that as these financial pressures grow, what's gonna happen is not that we're going to transform healthcare, but we're gonna move to a system of rationing where they're gonna say someone's too old to have heart surgery or total joint replacement. A drug's just too expensive. It's much better. It's just too expensive, we can't pay or there's a queue of one year, get to the back of the line, and that that will become the system of medicine. And I think in a physician culture, that so values mission and purpose, that's why medical students became medical students. I think that's gonna be far worse. And as difficult as it is to think about transforming and evolving and changing, I think it's actually going to be the better of the two paths Again, it's why I wrote the book on caring.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I think the I think your point regarding the experience of care and the the ability to provide excellence in customer service is critical. And I don't think we think about that enough or value it enough in healthcare and in medicine. Um, you know, you, you, we have waiting rooms, right? We keep people. You, you know, in 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 those waiting rooms and so forth, right? And, you know, information about our disease and our conditions are very difficult to get. Uh, finding you know the doctor's phone number or phone number to the office is is tricky. So you're right. I think there's also for younger people they you know they it's been shown and there's a lot of data to support that they just prefer ease of use. And if they can get that great service that they're used to from Prime, why can't they get it when they need something as simple as a med refill? So I think that's a very big and pressing issue to my mind in healthcare that we don't we don't value enough. But in our few minutes, I do want to ask one more question, uh, probably a couple more. But the, from the from the audience, it tends uh, there's a couple questions in around the. You know, all the talk about patients being a source of profit feels uh you know is sort of rubbing people the wrong way, not not because you're saying it or you're advocating that, but somehow sort of the soul of the patient and the importance of the patient, uh in in all of the this discussion around around you know, cost containment, uh or even rationing you just mentioned uh it feels, uh you know, it's hard to hear, right? Because as an individual, as a patient, as somebody who, you know, we all have loved ones who are patients at some point, we want to, we'd like to believe that the doctor uh, and the healthcare system is there purely because they want to take the best care of us, not because, you know, to be thinking about money and cost savings. So that's a tension, isn't it? How to, how to address that and, and care for the patient individually and really care about their outcomes and well-being versus, you know, alongside having, having to pay attention to the bottom line. How do, you, how do you address that?
1: Again, it's why I wrote the book, because I've never met a physician who intentionally harmed a patient. I've never met a physician who is not dedicated to first doing no harm, to being able to maximize the health. The ideas of what I'm saying are going to be problematic because it's not the intent of the physicians. And yet at the same time, when I look at the data, it exists. And that's why I researched the book and saw this culture sitting in play. I mean, again, let's be a little controversial. Surprise billing, which has now been outlawed by Congress, you know, how does it make sense to put the patient in the middle? And yet within the physician culture, you look at the largest organizations. One in five patients that came to the ED in the United States uh, last year got a surprise bill. One in five people going to the operating room got a surprise bill. How do we explain that? It's not motivation. I don't think doctors think about money in that way. The last thing they do is saying, I want to do more procedures to make more money. No, it's the opposite. They are the hardworking, dedicated people. But when you look at the outcomes, that gap. The last thing they're going to want to do is harm someone based upon the color of their skin. But if it's happening, we've got to recognize it. And I'm really glad that the uh, listener and the viewer called in that question because this is not any intention. Doctors don't see patients that way. They see themselves in a loving relationship, but that's not necessarily the way the patient sees that experience from the consumer perspective, or that's not what the data says on the cost and quality outcomes.
0: So I think we have time for one more question, and and let me just ask you this. In the book, in your book, Uncaring, you discuss how culture is learned and passed down through ceremony, norms, and values, and you've talked about that today. So much like a child learns by watching their parents, behaviors are observed and mimicked. So if you were medicine's parent, what new values, habits, and norms would you want to teach teach youngsters entering medicine? I think
1: the values are the right values. It's just that the system of medicine has caused us to act in ways against those values. And I would focus on that. I would, as an example, say to every medical student and resident and doctor, Did you treat every patient today the way you'd want for your family and friends? And when the answer was no, which I think it often would be, I would say, we can do better. And how can we do it together to improve the care that's there? I'd want to advance healthcare into the 21st century. You know, if you look at burnout in medical school, it starts in the first year. First year medical students, they haven't... Dealt with an insurance company. That can't be the cause. They don't use the electronic health record yet. That can't be the cause. So what's going on? Because what we elevate in medical school, in first year of medical school, is the ability to have rote memory. Because doctors are really smart people. They're really good at doing tests. That's how they became doctors in the first place. They memorize these arcane facts. They get tested on it. And the ones who move up the hierarchy the fastest are the ones who can memorize these arcane rote facts most quickly. It's the last thing we want. You know, again, in the last decade, if you wanted to carry around all of medical knowledge, you'd need a 100-pound backpack filled with textbooks. It's now called a smartphone. The last thing we want to do is have doctors memorizing what they can easily obtain on that smartphone and teach them how to do the things that are able to make care better higher quality, more easy to access. I would send them all to business school for a month to learn how to lead, to learn how to create groups, to learn how to improve performance. And I think in the end, I would really try to reshape the values of the physician that traditionally has focused simply on one patient and be able to focus on a population of patients and the care delivered, and take a much more, I'll say, comprehensive view. I point out in the book how cultures left over from decades before, in the past, what were we taking care of as doctors? Acute pneumonia, for which we gave an antibiotic. Appendicitis, for which we took out the appendix. Now we're dealing with complex chronic disease. We're dealing with problems that social problems that never existed before. This is the opportunity to make change, and I would assure physicians. That when they focus on mission and purpose, when they provide care to people who otherwise can't get it, that they will get more from the experience than they will give and the culture of medicine will begin to care more about those values, about those individuals and we will diminish the harm to patients and diminish the harm to physicians.
0: Well, you know, unfortunately we've we've run out of time and that's all the time we have for today's program. There are so many more questions that I wish we could have gotten to the role of the patient. There's so many things, Dr. Pearl, and I've enjoyed my time immensely. Perhaps in the future, there'll be another time we can speak. Um, but I want to thank you, Dr. Robert Pearl for joining us today. On today's Commonwealth Club program, I encourage all listeners and viewers to purchase his important new book, Uncaring How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. This program will soon be posted on the Commonwealth Club's website at www.commonwealthclub.org. My name is Julie Klieger of FTI Consulting. And this Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned.
1: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher.
0: If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate.